Some years ago, actor and writer Rachel Coops upped stumps from what looked like a perfect life on paper to go to clown school for a year. There were some wonderful gains and some losses in her version of what's been called an adult gap year. We'll look at how you could make that best work for you soon, but I'd love to hear from you if you've taken a chunk of time off at some point as an adult. What motivated you and how did that work out? And when I say adult, I guess I mean beyond 17 or 18, those early adult years where you might take a gap gap year between uh, high school and whatever comes next, whether that's work or study. Now, you might know Rachel Coops from Play School or from her books, including the latest one, Paris for Beginners, a memoir about love, adventure and finding yourself in the city of lights. Rachel, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you so much for having me. It's a fascinating story and I think something a lot of us go, ooh, that sounds like fun. Tell (laughs) us what was going on for you though in Sydney in 2004 and and why all that wasn't enough. I know, think about it. Sydney 2004, (laughs) when King's Cross was still King's Cross and Nokia's were very big. Um, I was I'd been acting for most of my 20s and had a long-term, long-term boyfriend and we were, I was living with my best girlfriend in an Art Deco apartment in King's Cross and doing independent theatre and TV series and having a great time of it. But I had always, having done an economics degree at Sydney Uni, I'd always had this imposter syndrome that one day I would get caught as a fraud as an actor. And I'd never been to any kind of drama school. I'd done a workshop with this teacher, Philippe Collier, and that came from um, my childhood. In fact, we had an English babysitter who used to walk a whole bunch of us to school and take care of us. And she had gone to Collier many years before and studied clowns. So she would pick us up from school, dressed up as a clown. And I'd always had a fascination with Paris from very young. I have no idea where that came from because I was, you know, brought up in Dremoyne, working class Aussie kid, getting sunburnt and swimming in pools the whole time. Uh, And the end of my 20s when all my friends were starting to progress in their careers and make some pretty good, solid practical, probably clever life decisions (laughs) Uh, and settle down, I decided to go to Paris and begin again and study with this teacher that I'd always had a fascination for in the city that I had always dreamed of living in. He sounds like quite a character. I love the quote at the start of the book from him. You have to find your freedom, otherwise you will keep breaking the balls of innocent people. (laughs) That sounds like an incredible teacher. But I mean, in the process of uprooting yourself, what was that like? You had to leave this lovely boyfriend and this beautiful living situation. How hard was that? It was way harder than I ever imagined. Uh, I don't know how much I really thought I was going to land on my feet. I think I'd always landed on my feet fairly well because I'd walked quite a, quite a safe path, even though I was an actor. I had been, I'd always had other jobs. I'd always kind of been the good girl and done the right thing and not taken big risks. And so when I arrived and I'd only done six months of French at Alliance Francais, like one night a week, um, after my my work, and I couldn't understand the language, and I didn't have all of my safety resources, and there's so much to navigate in a foreign country, whether it's 
you know, language, cultural, and just the rules. Paris has a lot of rules. <laughs> and, and I didn't know any of them. And so, of course, you only learn the rules by breaking them or people teaching them to you. And so, and then, and then at the same time, the landscape of being in this very brutal and unraveling little cocoon that was an international theatre school in the east of Paris in a, a big warehouse with people from all over the world, all signing up for the same thing, which is to be taken to our limits and to try to find our sensitivity and our vulnerability and our joy and our humour. So there was a real letting go of everything you thought you were and every time I tried to hold on to that, which I did for dear life for quite some time, um, you, I'd learn the hard way that until you completely surrender and arriving vegan, yoga, meditator, within a year I was smoking, riding my bike by the canal, eating all the sausage on and eating and, and the fromage, the cheese and, you know, <laughs> and dancing on my terrace, my balcony for my 30th birthday, single. Um, and of course, unraveling it at the same time, this deep sense of, oh God, I, this is the only place I could ever imagine being. I cannot imagine being anywhere else at this moment in my life. So you stayed there for the whole year. You did the clown school for the year. What happened at the end of that time when you had to go, okay, what's next for me? Well, spoiler alert for the book, um, <laughs> I failed clown. I was a terrible clown. And Philippe very rarely gives you a second shot um, at clowning. He's like, if you can't find your sensibility and be really good at failing, then you kind of have to learn that before you, before you take up more time on stage. And he even gave me a second clown and I was a disaster because I think I'd failed so much that year. I just wasn't ready to fail again. And I, I, my relationship had dissolved uh, with, you know, the great love that of, of my life. I really hadn't had a relationship like that up until that point. And I kind of lost track and forgot who I was and really was a, at the end a very different person to when I arrived. And I think it was... The, a, a major failing in a lot of ways. But again, when I arrived back and I set, even tried to win back um, my partner and he said, no, like, it's too late. You you broke my heart. And even beginning again at that moment, I I knew that I had, I had to go through that process. It was almost like, and I, I do believe in this, I talk a lot about this in the last book, that I think you can have anything in life. And for me, it's always been very important to understand who and what I am. But it, you have to give up something to get something. That's the deal of life. We see that again and again and again. You have to, in order to, to access something that you wish for your, this lifetime, there's going to be something that you're not allowed to have. <laughs> yes, yes. So instead of stay, looking at life as accumulating experiences or trips or stuff or money or whatever, you're going to have to choose between some of those things, aren't you? Correct. Yeah. So do you have regrets, Rachel? I mean, the, you took this chunk out. It, it it changed the direction of your life and it sounds like it changed you a lot as a person. Was that ultimately a good thing? Absolutely. And a little pause there, I notice. <laughs> yeah, because I went back... I went back last April and it was my first, you know, solo trip since being a parent and, you know, two weeks by myself in this city that I, I love so much and was so formative. But I kind of had that process again. 
of looking back and going, what have I done in the past 10 years? Do I have regrets of all this time? I've just, you know, the choices I've made in the past 10 years. Can we live without that sense of nostalgia and can we ever be really sure that we've made the right choices along the path? I don't know that we can. All I know is that I've every time I make choices in my life and I try to learn from the process, I would, however messy it gets, that there's always these nuggets of, okay, well, I understand myself more, but I can't say 100% whether life would have been better or worse had I stayed. Mm. Who knows? And it's the same with the last 10 years when I arrived and I looked at it and I I was like, I've changed and Paris has changed and the world's changed and what's next? But at the same time, I don't know, maybe I'm going to always have a sense of longing to know the unknown, to know myself, to, to a sense of nostalgia. I don't know, maybe that just lives within me and maybe it lives within a lot of us. I'm interested too, Rachel Coops, in that that trip back because, as you say, it was only two weeks, but that's like a year in single mum travel terms, isn't it? It's incredible. And you you write about how you, you look at your body in the mirror and you see the changes that have happened in that time since you first went to France and you've accepted that this is who you are and you, you've learnt to kind of love this new you. But did going back help put you in touch with the younger you that had made those choices about freedom and self-discovery that, you know, uh, can be quite different when you're single parenting? Absolutely. As soon as I arrived, it's, and perhaps many of us have a place that when you land, you're like, oh, right, yes, that's this part of myself. And Paris always lights up the creative, the... um, that part of me that feels very free, that anything is possible, but also that it's the little moments that are the most joyous because my life, in inverted commas, is in the daily life, the daily grind, is what I loved the most. Sitting by the canal and enjoying a a glass of wine and uh, some crudite, some, you know, raw veg or a croissant and a coffee with girlfriends. And It was more for me going, God, I've lost the art of that. I've lost the art of being able to sit down and enjoy being with my people or being in a place. There is freedom in that. There is this part of me that just instantly feels that when I arrive, maybe because I don't have the weight of responsibilities. And we, we know that when you move away from your your extended responsibilities of family and people who know you to be a particular way, you can be anyone and anything. But I really wanted to come back. And that two weeks, which seems so indulgent, and it upsets me that we feel like, as parents, we're not allowed to take any time away to remember who we are. And that's uh, the conversations I've had a lot since the book is like, oh, yeah, but, you know, oh, I definitely can't take two weeks. And I think, wow, it's such a short time out of 10 years Mm, (laughs) to, to kind of reconnect with that part of yourself that if it means you then go, oh, there I am. There's that part of me that is able to enjoy the daily grind and able to enjoy the two-minute coffee maybe, the two-minute conversation I have with the barista when I'm grabbing my coffee on the way to school run or whatever, that you just can indulge in it more because you know that that part of us is so... um, It keeps keeps life... Well, for me, it provides meaning. Yeah. And, And so in the tougher times, it doesn't have to be a year. It doesn't have to be two weeks. But in the tougher times, if you've had those moments of reconnection... 
because we, we don't always have the luxury and life gets challenging and complicated. Yes, indeed. But I think it gets you through those moments. Yes, if that part of you is dormant but still in there. Rachel Coops, it's been lovely chatting to you. Thanks so much for sharing a bit of your story with us today on Life Matters. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You might know Rachel Coops from Play School and her books. The latest one is called Paris for Beginners, a memoir about love, adventure and finding yourself in the city of lights. I asked for your stories before. One's come in from Rebecca. I'm almost 50 and just about to finish a 10-month sabbatical. I was made redundant after 23 years with the same company. It was a wee bit of my own orchestration as I really needed to move on. The last 10 months have been an amazing gift to take time with my family, relax, find the right next job for me and I have starting next week she says it's such a great role it will be strange to go back to full-time work but I am ready and another one says wow a privileged girl with no responsibilities takes a year off in Paris a gap year for workers with responsibilities get real Hillary I guess I'm after all the stories it could be the ones of you know the working holiday you backpacked you hitchhiked you did it tough because those were your options, but you took some time off and you learnt something. Tell me what it was. And I, I don't know if you heard uh, Rachel talking earlier about the fact that she did grow up working class. She she had to struggle to get through uni and to um, have the life that she had. And she took this little moment in between working uh, in a job born out of her economics degree to do something that was very different. I'd love to hear those stories if that's something you did as an adult. You're listening to Life Matters on RN. We've been hearing a lot about these experiences from people who've undertaken them. What about those watching on from a business point of view? Dr. James Bailey is a professor of leadership and management at George Washington University in the States. Dr. Bailey, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Now, how common is this desire we've been hearing about to take a big chunk of time off? I think it's more common than we think that it is. The organizations that attempt to track this stuff, like the Gap Year Association are not really suited to do um, really formal and broad kind of surveys around this. But I have to tell you, every serious executive that I have spoken to would love the opportunity to take some serious time off to consider who he or she is, what their purpose is, and where they're going with their career. Well, we'll look in a moment at some of the challenges they might encounter, but what do you think is driving that feeling for most people, James? Is it that they want some time off from the busy lives or or to do something in particular? Well, gosh, it's a really good question. I think obviously there's a a bit of both. People just get worn down, right? Um, Candle burning at both ends where they, they just feel sort of empty and um, a, a kind of existential crisis about who they are and where they're going and why they're here, what their purpose is. And so that's part of that. And then the other part was exactly what you said, which is moving forward. Where am I going next? Why am I going there? What's going to excite me in my life? And how am I going to finish the next 20, let's say 20, 30 years of my career? Well, yes, the excitement that you mentioned, it's quite different from that idea of relaxing, isn't it, and taking some time off just to kind of lounge a little. What kind of plan would mean that you were hitting the right note in the activities that you chose to do in your time off? Well, I think that's a, that also is a, is a real insight because most people think of gap years or sabbaticals as time to just laze around. 
And that is exactly what they are not. Um, uh, Academics, which I am, we get a year off every seven years. And the idea is that we go away and we produce something without the shackles and the everyday pressures that a professor has to face. And so this could be a new book. This could be a series of articles. This is very common among the priesthood, by the way. Um, even Prince Philip himself supported um, a, uh, a sabbatical program for Anglican priests. It's not about relaxing. It's about identifying and setting steps for moving forward in a meaningful way that's going to provide fulfillment to your professional life. So it's it's kind of like a sabbatical. It's not just a holiday. It could be like the Australian version of long service leave. Some people use that just to completely rest and some people use it to pursue a project, perhaps a creative project that's adjacent to their work or completely different from it. James, you mentioned before some of these barriers that people might find, and I know you've summarised them in your writing as finances, family and fears. Let's let's start with finances. How would we deal with the, the issue that if we're not being funded for a year off as a sabbatical, we might need to fund it ourselves. Oh, well, goodness. Um, If your organization doesn't endorse it and at least provide some percentage of your pay, well, then it's going to be financially difficult, right? You basically have to ask for an unpaid leave off, assuming they'll even accept that. And so financially, this could be quite a burden And that's, by the way, in my research, we see this happening more among upper middle class executives because they do have the money to do it. Um, Family, obviously, you have to get away from your family life just like you have to get away from your work life. And so there's going to be tensions between the family. Is dad there? Is mom there? What are they doing? It doesn't mean you can't stay in contact with them, for goodness sake, but it means you're not going to be there every day. And fear, of course, there's fear. I'm going to go off by myself and try to figure out who I am when your every day has been filled with habitual and even ritualistic activities. And those go away. So that's a kind of change, a serious change in your lifestyle. And any time that is brought about, fear becomes paramount. I want to come back to that in a moment, but I want to also talk to you, James Bailey, about arguments that you might use to convince your work to fund or partially fund this year off for restoration and rejuvenation. Are are there things you could say to them to say, look, I will be worth more to you when I come back? I I think that there is um, an argument in terms of the renewal component of it. And organizations very regularly will allow employees, will excuse me, even, even require employees to go away for a week or a two-week um, kind of retreat in some ways. But there has to be a benefit to the organization. Um, there has to be something that they're going to get back in return. Are they going to get a better person, a more creative person, a, a more energetic person? And so there is a business case, which I have not seen yet, to be honest, I haven't seen the finances, the profit line of this. Um, So there is a certain humanitarian ethic to this is you've done good work and this is a reward for your good work, but we want you to bring 
something back. Just like I said earlier, when professors go on sabbaticals, they're expected to bring something back. New book, new articles, whatever it happens to be. Something quantifiable. Yes, we love a line item. But I guess, you know, is there a more uh, nebulous argument that, I mean, the the research shows that happier employees, employees with more opportunities, more sense of fulfilment, more sense of engagement with the organisation are likely to stick around longer and therefore cost the organisation less in turnover. Could you mount that argument to your boss? Oh, I think that that's exactly the argument that you would mount is that there, there, it shows a trust um, that we trust you to go away and to, again, be paid partially in order to bring something back that is valuable to the organization. Now, that that kind of trust really bonds you to your firm and to the citizenship that that firm requires to be successful It also becomes part of the culture of the organization, that you are culturally contributing to who we are as a firm and what it is we're trying to do and how we treat people, how we treat people here. And so those people might come back with that sense of renewed responsibility, devotion, dedication, work ethic. They might come back with that. Um, and so that's probably the the approach that organizations should take and how it should be presented. And I'm sorry to use this word, sold to them. Well, in my mind, as you're speaking, Professor James Bailey, I am thinking about conversations that might happen within a household and arguments that might be presented for and against and quantifiable and non-quantifiable returns and, and shared domestic load and things. So I'm sure all that would come into it. But on the issue of fears, I mean, that's quite a rational fear for many people, isn't it? That if you go away and take a year off, extending yourself possibly developing new skills that your employer may value, that you might not be able to slot yourself back in. And certainly if you Google adult gap year, there are a lot of stories from women in particular over 45 who have been very challenged when they try and reinsert themselves into the job market. What might help prevent that? Well, I think that, that first off, there's nothing we can do about fear. This is an atavistic kind of response that is deeply in our, 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 our gene code. And fear occurs anytime that a significant change is happening in our life. And when we lose, as I mentioned earlier, those, those habits, those rituals, we're going to be scared of it. And so that's naturally part of this. Now, what you just referred to in terms of literature about women returning to um, the workforce or to their lives, that depends on the kind of gap year they're taking and and what they're there for. A, A Business-oriented gap year is about plotting a personal plan, plotting an action plan, considering on, considering how this actually make can help make you more successful and a better collaborative partner in your organization. Uh, it's it's about being purposeful and flexible and and digital and, and excuse me diligent. And so there's a real specific orientation to a, a business-oriented gap year versus a purely personal one where you might be going anywhere, anyhow, at any time with no real endpoint in mind. 
Yep, meandering versus clear goals. Ah. Professor James Bailey, it's been great talking to you on Life Matters today. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Dr. James Bailey is a Professor of Leadership and Management at George Washington University. Now, gap years clearly fill different needs in different people. For Renee Yeager, work had always been really important. And by her late 20s, she was in a very senior corporate role at a major health fund. But when she turned 30, something changed a bit. Renee, what did you feel was missing at that point? Good morning. Um, To be honest, it just felt like a void in my life. Um, I had progressed really well with my career, um, but outside of work and socially and personally for me, there was just something missing. My friends um, were all getting married, having babies, and that wasn't on the cards for me at that point. So it was time for me to think about, you know, who do I want to be as a person? What is it that life has for me in store? Not just what society kind of suggests we should have been doing, which as Rachel touched upon before, I'd been the good girl and followed that path that, you know, is traditional for a lot of um, career from school into university into career. So taking that break to sort of find myself a little bit. Well, and why did you decide that you would go to Canada, never having seen snow before, rather than, you know, a beach trip or a month on the couch? Well, a month of a couch probably would have been fun too, but um, at the end of the day, I'd grown up in a small beach coastal town. I'd always been a beach gal. So I actually wanted to basically flip the table and say, where can I go that is completely different um, from what I'm naturally used to, but also has that sense of adventure and outdoorsness that I really enjoy being involved in. Um, plus, to be honest, it was a little bit of a safety net of Canada being English speaking and visa requirements and so forth to be able to get there. Um, but it was great because it still tested my limits, but also gave me that perspective of being outside, hiking, learning to snowboard, um, all of these great sort of experiences that I wouldn't have necessarily traditionally got where I was living here in Australia. What was it like telling work that you, you know, having always been the good girl and having been, you know, working steadily and and moving up the ladder at your job? Sorry, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to go snowboarding. Yeah, exactly. I actually, well, I struggled with the decision for a long time. It took me a lot of courage to kind of go in and have a conversation with my manager who had been super supportive of me as a person for years. And I actually said to him, look, I'm going to resign. Like it was a big call, but I'm going to resign. And he said to me, hold up, what do you need? What is it that you're looking for? And when I told him about what I was actually seeking, that it wasn't about work, that I loved my job, he said, let's have a conversation with the PNC team and see what we can do. And so I was really fortunate that he had that open-mindedness to have that conversation. And work was really great in supporting me for that as well and saying, you know what, let's try this career break. You can take 12 months extended leave without pay and we will be in contact and we'll hold your job for you. And when you see whether you're ready to come back or whether you don't want to come back, but it was allowing them as well to retain my knowledge and experience from the past five years um, and putting that trust, as the professor was just saying, in us to say, you go find yourself and we'll hold this position and hopefully you come back to us and bring back anything new that you've discovered. Um, so it was Completely unexpected, their response, but very much appreciated. Um, And I think that is something that really made a huge difference in my comfort and overcoming my fears to go, is that knowing that there was so much trust placed in me by the organisation to say, we would love to have you back. So do what you need personally, because 
you know, as you said before, like an engaged employee has to be happy in their own life as well. Um, and so I came back with that sense of, you know, responsibility and engagement with the company that I wanted to be there. I wanted to continue my career. And eight years later, I'm still there and I'm now head of the division that I was working in. Um, so it's been a really, I think, positive outcome for both parties in that I've come back to the business, but also personally, my life has continued and I've learned so much about myself and, you know, taken a totally different path and personal side of things as well. Well, it was interesting that, you you know, you, you took this year to go and focus on quite a different kind of work. You were doing largely physical work. You were having those adventure activities, snowboarding, hiking, um, socialising, those kinds of things. Did you get to the end of it and think, I don't need to do that anymore. I'm going back to my job because I love it. Or did you get to the end and think I need to make a new life that has a bunch of different things in it? Probably the latter. So, you know, the focus was definitely to to go and explore, to go and travel. Obviously, there needs to be some money coming in to fund that. So I took, took, you know, quite a casual job um, within Banff where I was living um, to be able to fund my adventures. So it wasn't about working in any sense. And but it was really good to kind of switch off and be able to leave my job that I was working in there behind and just focus on what are we going to do? What hike? What new mountain are we going to go to? Like what thing can I see? Um, but then, you know, it got to the end of that period and I thought to myself, what do I want to do here? Do I want to stay and continue doing what I'm doing? Do I want to continue my career path here in Canada? But I just loved my job so much and the people that I work with and the company that I work with that I thought, you know what, I've I've done my thing. I feel really good about the person that I've learned to become and the confidence and the resilience that I've developed. I actually met my partner there. Oh, um, so we're getting married in a couple of months. So oh, yeah, all of that kind of, yeah, worked out really well. And so we sort of made that decision of like, let's go back, come back to this amazing career that I had and is quite difficult to get where I live in Newcastle, a role such as mine. So it was kind of like, this has been a perfect experience to bring back and, you know, come back into real life for lack of better words. Um, and continue. Some really fascinating texts coming in on this, Renee. Uh, one says, if an organisation can do without someone for a year, they can do without them forever. Margaret, on the other hand, says, I can't see why you need to bring something back to the organisation to get 12 months leave without pay. You bring back a renewed you. So here's a few instances, I guess, where employers and employees might have different views. And Rob says, I've been taking sabbaticals for nearly 45 years. My last full-time job was in 1982. Since then, I've always just done contract work and taken a break in between each job. I come back to the workforce refreshed, highly productive, and I earn much more as a result. Congratulations, Rob. Renee Yeager, your work actually put that idea into company policy that you could take a year of unpaid leave off. Do you think that's benefited the company overall? Yeah, I think it's been a really good option for people to be able to go to the business and say, you know, this is what I'm looking for and, you know, is this something we can support? And there's been a a number of other employees go down that path, most of which I've seen actually have come back to work and progress in their career. Um, A couple have chosen not to come back for different reasons. Um, But I think from an employee engagement and retention perspective, that ability to offer flexibility to your employees and we've also introduced other flexible work practices for distributed working, work from wherever you need to. Um, I think it is something that employees need to start thinking about to be able to attract the best talent because 
you can now work from so many different places that that talent pool has really opened up and how you can attract the best people to come and work within your company. We need to kind of adapt to what society is now expecting and I think such flexibility and the ability to take such extended leave is a really high selling point when you're tossing up between a couple of companies that may be offering you a role. Really interesting discussion this morning. Renee, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Renee Yeager is the Head of Sustainability and Corporate Affairs for a major health fund. You heard earlier too from Dr James Bailey, a Professor of Leadership and Management at George Washington Business School, and from Rachel Coops too, an actor and author whose new book is called Paris for Beginners, talking about the year that she spent there, learning some useful things, you know, interesting things on a personal level, but useful things for how she wanted to lead her life and what she could contribute and where she wanted to go after that as well. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.